Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Spilt Milk. I'm your host, Sage McBee, back with another solo episode of Sage Stories, the segment where I talk about things that have impacted my life on a personal level in recent days, and just things that I find worth sharing for one reason or another. Today I'm bringing you a very special episode of the show, because it's actually related directly to one of my classes in college. I'm speaking, of course, of my Authoritarian Institutions class, which I've been taking this entire semester. We have finals next week, so this podcast is in fact my final project. Um, This class was taught by one of my favorite professors that I've ever had, the lovely Barbara Junispy, and yeah, it's it's been a fascinating course. In the class, we've covered and compared a plethora of different regimes that have been defined as authoritarian, both fictional and real, in fact, including the dystopian world of George Orwell's 1984 and Suzanne Collins' Hunger Games series, all the way to plenty of real-world regimes as well, including the Soviet Union, modern-day Putin's Russia, and the the Chinese Communist Party of today as well. We have also, of course, discussed the scenarios that facilitated or otherwise influenced these regimes and leaders' rises to power, as well as the different forces and institutions that have either maintained or led to the disillusionment of their control. Now, there are many different forms that this final synthesis of class knowledge could take as it was assigned, but All possibilities had one thing in common, and that was that we are tasked with taking the various insights we've garnered about authoritarianism from the course and apply it to our lives today, our contemporary lives in the year 2020 in the United States of America. Perhaps if such a prompt had assigned in, say, the year 2015 or earlier, it may have been poo-pooed as not very interesting, not very relevant to our current situation, if not outright preposterous. For America is supposedly um, defined and founded upon liberal virtues of freedom, of individualism, of thinking for oneself. However, a lot has changed in five years. In the four years since Donald Trump took the presidency, concerns about American fascism and authoritarianism have skyrocketed across the country. These fears culminated recently in the 2020 election with widespread paranoia about a potential military coup organized by Trump to stay in power. Roaming the streets. There'll be a continuation. And ears have noticed his many autocratic authoritarian tendencies. These aren't people. And we're taking them out of the country. ...is something akin to a fascist social and political movement. And at the very least, we have massive use of fascist tactics. And yet, despite this smoldering fear, ranting about how I think that Trump is the end of the world, or at least the end of American democracy, that's not my goal here. I don't mean to claim that these statements don't have some validity, and I will certainly go into them because they certainly do. However, I think that there has been a deep misunderstanding of authoritarianism and its potential in the United States, namely that it's not as partisan of an issue as people seem to believe. In order to effectively argue this point, I must make one more thing perfectly clear, which is that I do not intend to be any party's or ideology's moral judge in this case. 
I obviously find things that Trump has said and done to be atrocious, along with even things that his followers and opponents have done. But that's not the point in this case. Here, I would rather like to point out bipartisan patterns of authoritarianism that I've noticed in both the American psyche and social sphere in general. After all, unlike liberalism and conservatism, left versus right, which are moral ideals, authoritarianism and its counterpart libertarianism are more akin to mechanisms by which social virtues on the right or the left can or should be obtained. While libertarianism says no thank you to big government, and advocates for a free, do-as-you-will type pursuit of societal desires by its people, authoritarianism takes the view that people can't be trusted to figure their shit out, and therefore must be regulated and controlled hard. Both perspectives are valid in certain situations, and neither is innately evil. Rigid authoritarianism, for example, can merely facilitate the committing of evil acts, but it can do so on a much more wide scale than libertarianism, for it's much more calculated and systematic than anarchism. The point is this, authoritarianism is not an inherently bad form of governance, and I will be merely looking for if, it, if and where it exists on both the right and the left. I have identified three elements of growing authoritarianism which I find particularly important. Everything starts with an inculcation of fear against some existential threat to the nation. This rallying cry is strategically manipulated to coerce isolation and mass conformity of opinion, all oriented around a blind love for the nation, ideology, or leader. The final element is an enforced restriction of freedom of speech and expression, which helps control opposition against the movement. As we will soon see, vulnerability to these three exists within us all. So what is it that Americans find so threatening about authoritarian ideologies anyways? After all, we all live in a society nowadays with tons of social media where we're constantly being faced with people who disagree with our opinions, even aggressively so. Many people clearly have a psychological reaction when they hear the word Trump or Trumpism, but what is this in relation to? Personally, I don't think it is to any individual person. I believe it is towards this. The idea that so many average people could be drawn towards an ideology you find so utterly repulsive is a truly terrifying thought. It's a simple fact that the collective is always more powerful than the individual. And just as collective action can be exhilarating to the insider, so can it be equally terrifying to the outsider who sees these crowds of people gathering around something that they can't stand. Crowd behavior, possibly more commonly known as groupthink, is an incredibly powerful psychological force, which is why so many theorists, including myself, not that I am a theorist, consider social psychology, specifically groupthink, to be a fundamental factor in shaping growing authoritarian regimes, ideologies, and leaders. And what is one of the most powerful collective emotions that exist? Certainly the one that is most easily exploitable and triggerable? It's fear. In her works on personal attachment and totalitarian systems, psychologist Alexandra Stein describes how followers can experience a state of hyperarousal and frantic distress, 
particularly when placed in situations where they face a perceived threat that is irreconcilable or unremediable by their own personal endeavors. They have no control over the threat. They cannot solve it themselves. This psychological process causes people to disassociate from the side of their brain involved with more logical thinking and rely on the emotional side, the side for self-preservation. And this is exactly what cult leaders, for example, along with other political totalitarians and authoritarians, it's exactly what they exploit in, in order to get people to follow them and do what they say. The perceived irreconcilability of the threat is essential for the leader, for it, for it gives them a never-ending supply of fear to exploit. Such existential threats existed in virtually every regime that we studied in class. In 1984, the citizens of Oceania are forced to gather for two minutes every day to watch a film depicting the enemies of the state, allowing them to vent existential anguish and personal hatreds towards politically expedient enemies. While not as existential and perhaps not even as effective, the oppressed citizens in the Hunger Games series are also gathered to watch propaganda films that generate fear regarding what could happen to them should they resist the capital. If we look to modern-day Russia and China, we see similar existential threats. Both the reign of Putin and Xi Jinping are in part maintained by a fear of what could happen should they not be in power anymore, and how their countries might fall to other foreign powers such as the United States. In Russia in particular, there is widespread fear of returning to its oppressive Soviet Union ways, at, so, at which point it was not able to be competitive with other uh, powerful nations in the world. All of these existential threats, save the one utilized in the Hunger Games, are able to be alleviated, or at least postponed and pushed away, only by relying on the current governing powers. A further genius point about 1984 is that the existential threat of Goldenstein is in fact a lie created by the government, meaning that the regime has 100% control over it, and it will never go away. It's in some sense no wonder, then, that as of now, the Hunger Games' capital is the only regime of these four examples that has actually been overthrown, because it mistakenly positioned itself as the source of fear in the lives of its followers. So what about the United States? What do we have to be afraid of? And what existential threats have been manipulated by our governing officials? Well, for Trump and the populist right, this abject terror was characterized above all, at least in 2016, by a fear of minorities. Now, we've been born into a time of great social change in America, with the country becoming more diverse and progressive ideology flourishing, at least in academia and media. This has brought many social issues in the, into the public view, which previously were not, and this all has unfortunately coincided with disastrous economic trends for the working class, including millions of whites. This massive and overwhelmingly white citizenry in America, feeling out of place with contemporary progressive culture, and also feeling utterly destroyed, economically and particularly, by years and decades of terrible economic policy, were perfectly vulnerable for a strongman figure who claimed to know their enemy and how to defeat them. The thousands of illegal immigrants supposedly streaming across the border, raping as they went, 
and stealing all of the jobs. In this sense, Trump expertly, and one might say deviously, exploited economic insecurity combined with plenty of latent racism to create an environment of fear and terror with him as their only potential savior, something we'll get into more in the next segment. If we extend this analysis to the recent election, we see that the existential threat of, tw of Trump's 2016 America has been completely changed and replaced with coronavirus, something that Trump himself has been shown to not be able to treat, to not be able to help us against. Thus, he was forced to shift his focal point of fear from minorities and immigrants to radical leftist socialism, something with such little grounding in reality, as well as something that we simply do not care about on average as much as coronavirus itself, that it didn't work. It didn't generate the amount of fear that he hoped it would. Trump's repeated usage of the term Chinese virus is another example of his attempt to combine the threat, the true threat of coronavirus, with a sovereign nation. But unfortunately for him, people are simply more afraid of COVID itself and its effects than the unlikely threat of China as a bioterrorist regime. Trump is altogether a prime example of the inculcation of fear necessary for an authoritarian regime to prosper, but he also exemplifies an utter failure to maintain a single existential threat in the focal point of the nation. And as for liberal politics, well, fear has played heavily into that realm as well. The simplest way to categorize the predominant existential threats in liberal politics, media, and academia is to divide them into two sections, those pre and those post-Trump administration, with the latter half mainly being a reaction to Trumpist policies and ideas. In the former category, we have those which dominate liberal arts colleges like Pitzer, including racism, sexism, climate change, economic inequality and inequality of opportunity, and other forms of bigotry. One could argue all day long regarding the validity of these claims, which I do not intend on doing here, but that's exactly my point. They are, without a doubt, very existential threats which demand radical action to alleviate. As I alluded to earlier, the rise of Trump in 2016 dramatically altered the landscape for these fears, either giving them physical context, changing them, or adding in new ones altogether. For example, while police brutality and military expenditures and imperialism have been liberal concerns for quite some time, it was Trump who took them and gave them credence on American ground. Fear of violent state-led crackdowns not seen since the Vietnam protest era has been rampant throughout 2020. The final and perhaps most significant liberal fear in our current day is that of coronavirus, which has obviously been taken much more seriously on the left side of politics than the right. Now, by deeming these threats to be existential, I do not intend to discredit their validity for Obviously, most, if not all, are completely real and should be, should be feared and should be tackled. However, in an attempt to retain a degree of objectivity, I am trying to see both perspectives with equal degrees of potential validity, as well as equal degrees of potential exaggeration or misappropriation. 
The extremely low level to which many hyper-liberals and hyper-conservatives can see eye to eye or even see each other as equally human tells me that the fears that each one has internalized have been incredibly exaggerated and overtaken as ideology rather than fully rational thought. The fact of the matter is that in the current social and political moment, in extremely general terms, we have two groups, two massive groups, which see each other both as subhuman and as the bane of each other's existences, and very rarely are one side's facts able to persuade the other that their views are incorrect or at least flawed. This is a major problem, and reveals the potential for populist authoritarianism on both the right and the left. As we move on to my second factor of burgeoning authoritarianism, it's important to emphasize here that fear is not the ultimate emotional state that such authoritarian leaders want to instill in their followers. It's fear that creates anger and hatred, because these are emotions that truly allow us to shut off our brains and not absorb any critical information about such peoples that we don't agree with. This is why George Orwell referred to it in 1984 as the two minutes hate, not the two minutes fear. Fear-mongering is effective, but only if it creates hatred and anger, which does actually bring people together. How then, you might ask, do you explain the Soviet Union, whose perhaps most provocative word, comrade, symbolized the coalescing of communities, the bringing of together of society in pursuit of a common goal and love for one another? Indeed, love and devotion have just as much of a role as hate and fear in coercing isolation and conformity in the populace of an authoritarian regime. There seems to be a three-part emotional cage at play. Fear of some unknown or existential threat that soon turns into anger and hatred towards that threat, dehumanizing it. And finally, love verging on religious devotion, generally to an individual strongman leader who has promised to protect and save the populace from that threat. Time and time again, we see the emergence of this domineering masculine figure, from President Snow and Big Brother to Xi Jinping, Stalin, and especially Vladimir Putin. Donald Trump fits into this category as well, of course, for he struts his masculinity in almost every press conference and interview he has had. From a sociological gender perspective, it makes sense to have this masculine strongman figure as the head of an authoritative party which embodies those virtues. And it is a commonplace enough phenomenon that I could have given it a category all its own, but I thought best not to, as I do not see it as the deciding factor between what is authoritarian and what is not, especially since regimes like the Soviet Union were not at all times led by a single figurehead. The net result of this rallying around a savior figure, or ideology in the case of the Soviet Union, all in retreat from a vague other which is both feared and scorned, is an intense conformity of opinion via an ideological echo chamber, as well as a triple isolation of the follower. We see this most extensively in 1984, in which Winston is not only cut off entirely from the outside world, but also from his friends and family, who he either mistrusts or is unable to get a true connection with. 
as intense surveillance and punishment of thought crime in his society prevents anyone from expressing themselves freely, whether it be through written word or verbal speech. This cultivation of isolationism results in a toxic environment wherein the follower has only one recourse for salvation, only one thing they can truly rely on in their life, the authoritarian ideology or leader itself, which Winston ultimately reverts to. So how does this all compare to what we see in America? Well, one disclaimer I must make about both the right and the left side of the equation in America is that there is no official apparatus to ensure isolation for the American citizenry. Americans are still allowed to associate with whoever they would like in the country, as well as travel anywhere in the world they might desire. To be fair, of course, most other nations also allow this, such as modern-day China and Russia, and it is places like North Korea and the old Soviet Union that really put a restriction on things in this regard. Now if we look specifically at Trump and his primary follower base, we do in fact see an immaculate display of groupthink led by the three emotions that I previously outlined. Fear acts as the emotional instigator, as we have already discussed, but that is not the emotion that many describe when going to Trump rallies. Instead, these rallies are alleged to be utterly glorious for the invested follower, with waves of emotion rippling through the crowds, admiration and joy and excitement, and just communal activity and feeling. Hatred and disgust are absolutely present whenever Trump qu calls out a quote-unquote enemy coalition, such as the fake media, but in a communal setting such as this, these feelings do not have a negative connotation, but are rather enjoyable. They bring people together. This is because love and hatred, just like fear, all trigger that primal side of the brain that activates when climbing a tall cliff, or going skydiving, or fighting someone. They turn off rational thinking and expand one's capacity for emotional pleasure and engagement. For Trump and the populist right follower, a Trump rally is the church, the site of communion, of fear, and of rejoicing together in a harmonious battle cry. In terms of isolationism, Trump followers tend to band together both on the internet and in person, creating a sort of echo chamber like I have described. Since Trump's recent loss of the election, however, there has been increasing examples of infighting within the Trump base, mainly between supporters who either believe or don't believe that he actually lost or that there was fraud. This exemplifies the deep sense of isolation that exists even between the followers of a particular authoritarian leader, for the greatest virtue in such a system is to maintain faith in the leader and the movement no matter what. No matter what and no matter how much contradictory evidence against it there might be. The tragedy of this sense is that, if such faith is lost, connection to other followers immediately fades, which is why so many Trump supporters have been losing contact with each other and losing faith in even conservative media outlets like Fox News. It's also why, even in regimes like the Soviet Union, Communist China, and even 1984's Oceania, Regimes that are, in a sense, based around community and communal achievement. We ultimately see families and friends fighting amongst themselves, turning each other in, because, unfortunately, in such systems, the moral code is based around serving the leader and or cause, and thus, 
even in a society like the Soviet Union oriented around comradeship, around community, the ideology's lies and demands often supersede actual loving connections to people, which is why so many relationships are destroyed when such ideologies or regimes ultimately fall. <laughs> Before we get too depressing, I would like to return back to the liberal side of the equation, which has experienced some of these patterns as well, though to differing extents. The primary parallel between both sides is that both radical liberals and Trumpists, who I see as the farthest apart from each other on average, both of them are heavily segregated by viewpoint, as in they experience similar homogeneities of opinion and thus echo chambers. This segregation exists both geographically and institutionally, as while leftists tend to dominate cities and institutions of higher education, radical conservatives, primarily those who support Trump, tend to dominate rural areas and religious institutions. Social justice and liberal arts colleges like Pitzer surely experience similar levels of intellectual cohesion and similarity as towns in the South who tend to support Trump. In contrast to Trump supporters, radical liberals don't really have a candidate who supports their views and policies, so other than Bernie Sanders and his rallies, I would say that their site of communion exists at protests, especially the Black Lives Matter protests of late, wherein a combination of fear, hatred, and excitement all come together in an equivalent form of groupthink as at Trump rallies, just for a completely different cause. While I want to say that progressive liberals are much less isolated from one another than the Trump followers we see scorning Fox News and fighting amongst each other, I'm not totally sure that's true. The terms woke culture and particularly cancel culture were of course originally coined to designate progressive liberals who have basically adopted the role of society's moral judge over social media, not only for conservatives and Trump supporters, but also of each other, of people who are deemed to be politically incorrect. Half a bajillion people have been called out online during the quarantine era alone for such offenses, and most of them were liberal-leaning who simply said the wrong thing at some point, possibly even in the past. I even know people who've quote-unquote cancelled family members for such offenses, which, as absurd as it sounds, reminds me of the craziness of George Orwell's 1984 with young kids uh, calling out their parents to the authorities. Of course this is a major exaggeration, and I'm not even saying it, that it's the wrong choice, but we certainly have to acknowledge that contemporary progressivism has a tendency to be very self-conscious and even vindictive towards its own people. At times when understanding and education would be far more appropriate, Trump supporters and other conservatives included. Of course, this version of authoritarianism is far different and perhaps more tame than that under Donald Trump, for there is no central leader to liberal scholarship. It is merely an ideology and a growing one at that. In the end though, both Trumpism and radical liberalism do tend to balance each other out, far more certainly than any other political authoritarian regime that we've studied in class and that I've gone over here. For example, both groups are able to coexist within the same country, and although they are not able to interact peacefully together very often, that's more because of a social issue, not because of any restrictive legislature. And don't get me wrong, polarization is a problem all its own, but far closer to civil war than any sort of individual authoritarian revolution. 
Even though political polarization sucks, I think we would all be much happier with both parties pushing against each other and balancing each other out than to have one take complete control. As we enter the final tier of what I believe to be the road to and maintenance of authoritarianism, I want to make something very clear. I believe that this tier, which is defined by the questioning, restriction, and disillusionment of freedom of speech and expression, is by far the most dangerous of the three. While I have attempted thus far to remain largely objective in a moral regard, I can see almost no social virtue or merit in destroying the freedom of speech. While certain authoritarian policies and acts can at times be justified by a means-to-an-end rationale, I see the restriction of free speech as nothing more than a self-serving act by a power elite or individual. Now, the restriction of freedom of speech also defines a phenomenon as uniquely authoritarian and not merely charismatic leadership. For emotions such as fear, love, hatred, disgust, anger, these have all been manipulated since politicians, talk show hosts, and other important figures since the founding of our nation, but they do not strictly define something as authoritarian, for capitalizing on others' emotions is merely a tact, it does not engulf somebody entirely in a movement. Controlling the spread of information and thus formation of ideas in a populace that is what uniquely creates this triple isolation that I have previously described, in which a follower is only able to rely on the ideology, the movement, and the leader for knowledge, and specifically knowledge of what to know, what to think, and what to do, because all other knowledge has been either deemed a lie or is actively restricted from their attainment. Authoritarian regimes demonstrate a variety of methods by which such perspective control can be realized, as well as a de varying degree of opposition and freedom that is allowed within the citizenry and specifically the media. However, it tends to come down to a combination of institutional, social, and psychological mechanisms. Firstly, intense surveillance from state institutions, aided thereafter by a self-regulating populace driven both by fear of the state itself, as well as the belief in the ideology it advances. And finally, the psychological factor is a combination of fear and paranoia about the state's autocratic power, as well as true belief and devotion to the cause itself, which dissuades many from questioning it in the first place. In the Soviet Union, for example, there certainly emerged an intensive surveillance state as time went on, much like what we see on a grander and even more intrusive scale in modern-day China and the fictional tale of 1984. External and internal media were also both intensely controlled, although this didn't just include political beliefs, for we see the, the spreading of records from the United States, for example jazz records, these were not permitted within the, the walls of the Soviet Union, which expresses an intense paranoia and fear from the controlling powers regarding external ideas in any form. The contention, no matter how hypocritical it might be, that it was the Beatles who ultimately took down the Soviet Union, it really reveals how isolated the Soviet citizens were from outside resources and, and knowledge of any sort. We mustn't forget about the social factor, however, for much like in 1984 and modern-day communist China, 
a Soviet citizen technically had just as much chance of being turned in by a friend or family member than any state person who was wiretapping their house, for example. The word Sovietsky, a term used for a proper Soviet citizen, exudes an air of morality attached to what it means to be Soviet at all, and defines certain actions as proper and good, and others as demeaning and against the cause, quote-unquote. Maoist China relied on an even more profound self-regulating populace, and we have read stories in class of children who turned in their parents for saying anything against Mao or against the Communist Party. China today no longer punishes thought crime per se, and its populace is not led to be quite as vindictive, at least on the surface. It relies instead on a significant surveillance state that has been allowed to flourish because of uh, many new advents in media technology, as well as an intensive censorship of the media itself, which has been incredibly effective in controlling what people know and think about the Chinese government. For example, many extremely intelligent college students today in China know nothing about the Tiananmen Square massacre, for it has been wiped from media outlets. There does remain some authoritative control over freedom of speech, though, for one is not allowed to insult Xi Jinping, the ruler, or the Communist Party without fine and potential jail time. This contrasts with modern-day Russia, where Putin does actually allow a significant amount of opposition, both political and social, to his rule. Instead of controlling outright what people are allowed to do and say, Putin relies on covert poisonings and beatings and even killings, and the ensuing fear that is created in the media industry and in journalists and the, and the populace. He relies on all these to control what people do and ensure that even opposition from the media or opposition from political opponents never gets far enough to actually dethrone him or destabilize his rule. This all goes to show that authoritarian control over free speech is actually quite varied, and there's not just one way to go about doing it. And now we get back to our age-old question. How about America? Is this still the land of free speech and free expression? This is the category of analysis that startled me most, for it actually seems as if the left is slightly more authoritarian regarding freedom of speech restriction than the right. Let me explain. Donald Trump almost exclusively relies on doubt in order to control the beliefs of his followers. By sowing doubt and disgust toward mainstream American media sources, he doesn't have to forcefully control what his followers think or what they do. He just has to let them figure that out for themselves and guide their journey towards trusting him exclusively. By doing this, Trump has almost ingeniously positioned himself as the coercive romantic partner who has instilled so much doubt towards the outside world in their partner that they just have to wait for them to come running back to them. He has positioned himself as the sole arbiter of truth, order, and safety for his followers amidst the chaos that is America, and the living martyr at that, for he has capitalized extensively on the relentless media attacks upon him, portraying himself as the innocent, courageous victim against corrupt leftist hordes, sowing only further doubt and reliance upon him for truth. We have seen this taken to a whole new level since his loss of the 2020 election, for Trump followers have been losing interest and faith in Fox News by the dozen due to their albeit resistant reporting of Joe Biden as the next president. 
This shows that the devout Trump supporter is not committed to objective truth, nor even to conservative politics, but rather to Trump himself. It seems then that Trump's greatest success has been to position himself as a quasi-religious cultish icon, a cult leader, a charismatic leader, an almost divine figure for a select percentage of the American population. Clearly, though, this utterly devoted crowd was only a portion of, of his original 2016 base, leading to his ultimate downfall this year when his original inculcations of fear, terror, love, disgust, and hatred simply weren't enough to compete with his abject failure to curb the COVID outbreak. Essentially, Trump's quote-unquote authoritarian or fascist control over free speech has remained exclusively within the cultural and social spheres, not the institutional and official one. He constrains people's expression through doubt and loyalty, and only of those who will listen to him. In this sense, he's closer to a charismatic cult leader than an authoritative Stalin type, and even then, much closer to a Charles Manson than a Joseph Smith. Okay, so if Trump's populist right isn't doing too well at constraining free speech, then how about the left? Well. This is when things start turning a little bit more officially authoritarian, surprisingly enough. The ambiguous term woke politics is generally used in a pejorative sense, but there is no denying that progressive-leaning pop culture has been tied to extensive censorship, specifically of speech, in recent years. Media stars and celebrities have been defamed and ostracized individual people banned from accessing their social media accounts, or cancelled, as is now the common phrase. Major social media companies such as Twitter and Facebook have even taken to censoring individual articles or pieces of information, providing fact-checked rebuttals on the appropriate side, and completely censoring information and accounts on the unacceptable. Whistleblowers like Edward Snowden and Julian Assange have been criminalized and imprisoned, although this is not necessarily connected with any political affiliation. What is, however, are the many professors at prestigious liberal arts colleges who have been protested or fired. Visiting speakers have been harassed and yelled off campus, and many ideas have even been censored and blacklisted at certain universities. Other than the whistleblower cases, all of these recent actions have been justified under accusations of bigotry, hate speech, lies, white supremacy, racism, and the list goes on, all topics that we covered earlier on in the podcast. Once again, I feel the need to make two disclaimers here. One, that of course Trump supporters have done many of the same things, especially harassing political and ideological opponents. Additionally, many of these actions can be justified to varying degrees, and I'm not saying that they're necessarily the wrong way to go about things. However, to claim that authoritarian tendencies exist in America only within Trump and his supporters is simply incorrect considering the evidence. Remember, authoritarianism is more mechanical than moral. It is a means to an end, and thus not inherently good nor evil. The rising amount of censorship we see pervading social life at liberal arts colleges, in pop culture, and in liberal media is therefore skewed towards authoritarianism, no matter the legitimacy of its justifications. The big difference is that unlike in the current populist right, there is no real rallying figure on the far left side of things, no charismatic leader to lead the charge, merely an ideology that is pioneered by all and thus means different things to different people. 
Both extreme sides of American culture are run by mob rule and groupthink above all that defines protests and rallies alike. But while right-wingers rally around Trump as their divine figurehead and purveyor of truth, progressives and social justice warriors rally around their knowledge of systemic racism and climate change and fascism and all the others. I think it's also important to point out here that many people claim left-wing concerns and resulting authoritarian tendencies are a result and response to Trumpist policies. I think that there's a lot of truth to this argument, for concerns over American fascism certainly did not exist until 2016 and beyond. However, it can't explain all of the liberal fears and concerns that existed prior to Trump's arrival. And the condemnation of people like Julian Assange and Edward Snowden existed long before this time as well. I think the primary takeaway of this American dichotomy is that while both sides implement emotional authoritarianism to try to win the culture war, with Trumpers and liberals segregating from each other online and in person, banding together in emotional displays that often try to silence their ideological opponents, where they ultimately differ is that what Trump has in charismatic leadership, the left possesses in systematic institutional censorship. The funny thing about authoritarianism is its ambiguity as a concept. Not once during this entire episode have I actually defined the term for you all, for I don't find it to be particularly useful. The official definition is, quote, the enforcement or advocacy of strict obedience to authority at the expense of personal freedom, end quote. But in this definition, what truly constitutes freedom? And how much can be stripped away before one crosses into authoritarianism? After all, all governments, including our own, deprive us of numerous freedoms in order to sustain society. And for the most part, we don't bat an eye at these restrictions of our expression. The difference between enforcement and advocacy is also quite vast and undefined, yet both supposedly count as authoritarian. Ultimately, I think that authoritarianism comes down to thinking you know better for people than they know for themselves. The trick is, whether by brute force or psychological coercion, getting them to agree with you. As far as I can tell, the potential for American authoritarianism doesn't ex exist solely with Trump, although he is a prime example of how it could be attained. His adeptness at inculcating fear in his supporters against an existential threat and manipulating it to coerce isolation and conformity and love and devotion for himself and him alone, truly positions him as a charismatic and cultish leader. However, the enforced restriction of freedom of speech is something that the left seems to do much more so than the populist right, which is odd, seeing as American Republicans historically lean much further towards the authoritarian side as their liberal counterparts. It's no wonder that we see so much more religious devotion in rural right-leaning communities, for religion is something that fosters and capitalizes upon an intrinsic psychological obedience to authority, a desire for patriarchal control, while secularity, a historically liberal phenomenon, relies on a proclivity for independent critical thinking and doubt, not faith, in authority. 
There's clearly something strange going on, as these phenomena are kind of flip-flopping between the two sides, and the two sides themselves are being fundamentally reshaped by culture and society as it changes. Regardless, research in the field of social psychology seems to support my conclusions, as multiple studies have found that left-wing authoritarianism, something previously described as a myth, actually seems to be on the rise in America. In these studies, both left-wing and right-wing authoritarianism describe personality characteristics that hold to Karen Stenner's theory that a certain subset of the population holds latent authoritarian tendencies in their mind which can be triggered by the perception of profound physical threats, for example, through destabilizing social change. As a different social psychologist named Jonathan Haidt put it, Quote, a button is pushed that says, in case of moral threat, lock down the borders, kick out those who are different, and punish those who are morally deviant. End quote. Interestingly enough, such a phenomena could be used to describe things that are happening on both the right and with Trump's community and on the far left. It seems that more people hold this psychological authoritarianism, this prioritization of social order and hierarchies, which bring, seeks to bring a sense of control to a chaotic world, it seems that more people have this innately within their psychological makeup than we could have ever have thought. And unfortunately for us, the convergence of a viral pandemic, a contentious presidential election, and a vast economic crisis afflicting much of the country are the perfect conditions for triggering these latent authoritarian desires. People are clearly the most vulnerable and, and open to authoritarian policies and decisions when fearing most for their own safety and survival. And so authoritarianism seems to be a bipartisan issue we'll have to keep an eye on for quite some time. <laughs>